in light of Seidau's talk last evening on some of the wholesome states of mind <clears throat> that uh, come up in our practice and the ways that uh, they can get corrupted and uh, Seidau's mention of equanimity as one of these wholesome uh, states this evening we'll explore equanimity Here in Taos we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's called Taos Mountain. And it's one amongst <coughs> it's one amongst uh, many, many of the mountains, as you can see uh, from some places in this area, that surround the Taos Valley. This uh, sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north edge of this town of Taos. And this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also in some ways uh, a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. And I uh, happen to have the very good fortune of being able to look out at it and take it in in every season, any time of the day or the night, any day of the year, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail falls on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of what I sometimes think of as radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the many, many lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say that it lets live life live through it, lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing and holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so uh, begins our exploration of upekka, equanimity. Equanimity is a powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddhist teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections. It's also one of the four Brahma-viharas, one of the four divine abidings, metta-karuna, metta-karuna-mudita, and equanimity, upekka. And it's also one of the two uh, jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana. And it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment, which are mindfulness, 
investigation, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Upeka was the final factor that came into maturity before the Buddha attained full awakening, before he attained enlightenment. As he sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night with an evenness and balanced balance in his relaxed and very powerful presence as though he were an immovable mountain. He sat there in what I sometimes think of as his amazing grace, seeing things very clearly and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind. And then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering, liberation. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, in experience, in relationship uh, to the experience of all kinds of change. The fearlessness the power and the balance of the mind and the heart to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external formations and in the realm of feeling, the pleasant or unpleasant feeling that is associated with the arising, change, and passing of internal and external phenomena. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states or cankers have been destroyed, destroyed temporarily or destroyed completely, finally. And one who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable or undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And some words from the Buddha. Here, a bhikkhu or a meditator whose cankers are destroyed is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a a visible object with the eye. And then he goes on, with hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She or he dwells in equanimity, mindfully, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka is onlooking. So equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the middle, we could say, staying in the center, watching things as they arise, as they change, as they pass. On looking it sees them fairly, it sees them without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, is neither painful nor pleasant feeling. 
the function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. So upekka manifests as neutrality. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or the equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and the weightiness of aversion. It's at that point of balance in the middle, that point of balance in the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember uh, as a child that I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on what we called the teeter-totter or the seesaw with another child. There would be a point at which we would both kind of be suspended, balanced, perfectly balanced. And there was always a certain kind of uh, happiness and an almost uh, breathtaking kind of feeling inside me when this would happen. Some of you may have had a similar experience when you were young. The poet T.S. Eliot said it beautifully in this way. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind and heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. Because of the very small container, the water will be extremely salty, quite harsh, quite undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put a teaspoon of salt into a large body of water, such as the Rio Grande River, which is the biggest river here in New Mexico, it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness that the salt is put into. And as we all know, life Uh, is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of the mind, the spaciousness of the heart, with which we can meet and look on at all of life's everyday experiences, as well as the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and know through our practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with what's sometimes called the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever arises uh, in conscious, uh, as a state of consciousness, whatever is present, including at times the three other uh, divine abidings, uh, metta, karuna, mudita, 
including uh, the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and including the arising of various other states, such as patience, faith. It means that this specific neutrality means that they are all met. They are all met, experienced, and seen, looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. So as I've already said, the function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so upeka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings that comes from a Zen master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi. It's called How to Cook Your Life where Dogen uses the um, work of the monastery cook, the tenzo, as it's called in Japanese, uh, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can um, bring this teaching very immediately close, right here and now, in relationship to our cooks here in retreat the amazing Surya and Chris Tenzos. <laughs> and our life uh, when we go back home. And this is what Dogen says. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. A dish is not necessarily superior because you have prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you have made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting, selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind, and without trying to evaluate their quality, in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dhamma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There is an old saying, the mouth of a monk or the mouth of a yogi is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking. Not in our case, of course, but (laughs) this is an old story. (laughs) Uh, Or in other countries, maybe. Uh, uh, Sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking without distinction. Our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to the capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? A simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and we find that the mind is tranquil, serene, and this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. The mind isn't listless, nor is it agitated, but rather it's interested and very appropriately energized. At those times, 
there isn't any interest or necessity in exerting, restraining, or encouraging the mind in any way. Something that probably all of you have experienced for maybe a moment or maybe longer at times in this retreat. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing and noting without attachment that this is occurring, that these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe a longer period of time is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state or the factor of equanimity thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to relate to all phenomena with equipoise and composure. So recognizing equanimity, recognizing other factors of mind, clearly, without attachment, this contributes to the development and the blossoming of equanimity. During the time in the culture of the Buddha, uh, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. He said, one is like the charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses, progressing evenly. But more likely, uh, in our case, the metaphor might be one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. (laughs) We're able to see and we're able to know to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by. And we're able to see and know and take this in with ease. This quality, this factor of mind, allows the process of practice, the progress of insight, to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired in the habits of mind that can stop things up, such as the various habits of clinging, of attachment and identification that can create a block, that can create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of attachment, identification, and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go of, allowing then understanding to blossom, to deepen, and to eventually mature. We begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of other wholesome mental states, as Sayadaw spoke about last evening. And as we we all know, that until equanimity is really truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, Uh, for the whole of the uh, last two weeks of a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity. I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma-Vihara, as one of the divine abidings. Silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over again, and first directing it uh, to myself, and then on through all of these same categories that are used uh, for metta practice. And the phrase that I uh, used was, I am the heir or I am the owner of my kama, meaning I am the heir, the owner of my deeds of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. So two weeks, day in and day out, and night, (laughs) going on with this practice, this phrase. 
by the end of those two weeks, uh, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance, a sense of evenness and a sense of neutrality in the mind and the heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, oh, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And the next thought was, well, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. (laughs) (laughs) If this was a Zen session, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a, a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't really do things like that. And then the thought just disappeared, of course. Well, later that day, I actually was startled uh, in a true Vipassana fashion, uh, an equanimity test we could say Vipassana style. I got a note uh, on the board signed by one of my equanimity teachers, um, though the note was actually from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And the note said, we would like you to give the Dana talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, I had never given a Dhamma talk to a hundred people in my life. So, for a moment, the equanimity uh, that I thought was so uh, abiding flew out the window. And my heart felt kind of like it stopped. That's fear, of course. (laughs) The old habit of fear flew in the window. And in my mind, there was uh, words of, I can't. I just can't do this now. I've been silent for so many weeks and so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of my fellow yogis and speak. It's impossible. And then the heart and the mind relaxed and really observed, saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, this is my equanimity test. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And I can do it. And I want to do it. And then at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came in. Came into the heart, came into the mind. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center staff, for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. What I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. But until equanimity has really matured, we lose and regain our balance over our balance of equanimity, the equipoise of equanimity over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear quieting dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt, disapproval, not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, as me, as, as my experiences. Equanimity also manifests in quieting the attachment and a fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and aversion to stick to when they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what the Buddha called the equanimity of unknown, unknowing. He called it worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. 
So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference? It occurs when we don't uh, clearly see or when we don't see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness and investigation. And instead, we're blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life, in the occurrences uh, that come up in our practice. Seemingly, and that word seemingly is important, seemingly equanimous with it all. This is not upaka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or on or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning kama, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity, in quotes, doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference, based in ignorance. I'm sure that every one of us sitting here has experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves, maybe in the midst of greed or dislike or resentment or anger or fear or disappointment. The glossing over, the ignorance, ignoring really these, ignoring these states, pretending to ourself, the pretense of equanimity, the sort of it doesn't really matter sort of attitude, or oh it's really all just fine, or I'm really, really quite okay. Accompanied uh, actually by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away from, accompanied by a slighter, not so slight contraction, which is not equanimity, but is actually indifference, which is the, what's called the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading as upaka. And of course, each one of us knows from our own experience that when we're really inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or resentment, it's extremely difficult or it just isn't possible to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. Upeka is based in a very attentive, clear presence of mind. Not on dullness, not on indifference. It's not a kind of casual passing mood. And it's not produced by exertion. It's the result, it's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, the fruit of training the heart through the development and the blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, loving-kindness, metta, and compassion. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops of the mind that we encounter in our own mind here in retreat and that we certainly also encounter coming to us in our life outside of retreat. The vicissitudes, or as they're called, the uh, eight worldly winds are are these. There's praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, 
fame or distinction and disrepute as it's called or we could expand that definition to disrespect or disregard I sometimes think of it as a having getting a bad reputation true equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes what feel like quite harsh uh, experiences and is quickly able to regenerate its strength from one's own inner resources the resources that in fact we've developed through diligent practice and from the Buddha from the Sutta Nipata developed the mind of equanimity he says you will always be getting praise and blame but do not let either affect the poise of the mind follow the calmness the absence of pride there's a an amazing practice um, that was and actually as I have been told occasionally still practiced uh, by the Hopi Indians it's not a practice that I recommend uh, but uh, we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and the manifestation of the power of fearlessness uh, the evenness of the mind the evenness of the heart and the protection that uh, is one of the great strengths of equanimity this is from uh, the book of the Hopi by Frank Waters there were all kinds of snakes rattlesnakes, big bull snakes racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes about 60 all tangled on the floor (laughs) the singing stirred them they moved in one direction then another looking over all the men in the circle the men never moved they just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces the snakes began to roll in the sand taking their bath then a big yellow rattler moved slowly towards an old man singing with his eyes closed climbed up on his crossed leg coiled in front of his breech cloth and went to sleep pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face then going to sleep it showed that they had found their friend looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest that is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts true equanimity will possess the power of protection and and actually uh, I, I emphasize and and a wholesome resistance uh, in relationship to the mind the heart getting seduced and caught in states of fear in states of greed in various states of aversion and also possesses the power of renewing itself only if it's really deeply rooted in a growing insight into the nature of things and so in relationship to this there are two uh, particular understandings that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening these two particular understandings that as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into insight are the root of equanimity and the first of these is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes the ups and downs the eight worldly winds of life how they originate how they come to be this is really basically the understanding of kama 
the understanding that the various experiences of stress, the various experiences of suffering, and the experiences of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and back on back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. It's a little bit more uh, explanation or exploration of this. We could say we're born, we, <clears throat> we spring out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are the undeniable heirs, the undeniable heirs of our kama. So for instance, very simple example. Just as soon as we've spoken words or we've performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, in some way, it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance, we could say. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or the dis-ease in our heart, in our mind, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings internally and externally. Our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind, our motivations and our responses or our reactions to all of the phenomena, internal and external phenomena. In other words, due to our actions of body, speech, and mind. It's not due to our wishes for ourselves. It's not due to some other person. It's not due to some outer uh, antagonistic or seemingly strange or some stranger foreign world out there. I'm going to repeat that. It's really what it's really due to uh, the ease or dis-ease in our mind is really the outcome of our mind's relationship to all of the happenings internally and externally. And as this understanding uh, begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so the first basis, this is the first basis of equanimity. When in fact with everything that happens within us and around us, when we begin to see that we only meet ourselves in relationship to all of the happenings within us and around us, what is there to fear? So the heart begins to relax. And we begin to know that in fact we can change our mind that in fact we're really not trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around and around like a little mouse. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. And as we take this refuge there really comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage 
to perform more wholesome deeds right now. Even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. And our practice itself, this practice, this incredible training of the mind and the heart is a very good deed, really the best deed. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness throughout all aspects of our life. So all of us, each one of us are involved in this tremendously good deed that has a tremendous effect on the whole of our life. One of the things that's been important uh, to me in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. Sometimes people think it's just too late, but it's never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, or as was said by one of the Buddhist disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, in our heart, the mind becomes more tranquil and serene. And we gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and the balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice with the development and blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that in fact we begin to have the strength to endure when we need to endure and to see clearly when that's what's called for. We have the, we become more familiar and actually able to befriend, we could say, suffering by looking at it very directly and very clearly. And then we have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over and over again, but begin to walk down a different street. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from actions that again and again and again repeatedly throw us into suffering, to free ourselves from repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering any moment in this very life. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and our own delusion and habitual tendency to create and engage in situations that strain and that sap our strength and our healthy resistance, there's a, what the Buddha called a wholesome disgust uh, arises. And our motivation then to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit, or we could say the deliverance of the deep and clear insight of equanimity is the escape from greed, which is uh, tanha in Pali, which is often uh, uh, translated as thirst. So the escape from insatiable thirst. So the first insight that is the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of kama. The second insight uh, or uh, understanding, growing understanding that equanimity is based on is the teaching and the understanding of anatta, not self.
from this perspective, there's no one, no self uh, performing any deeds, nor do any results, we could say, affect the self. The fact is, the truth is that it's the delusion of a separate, solid self, a separate me, that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life, the eight worldly winds, will always, always throw us into the realm of suffering. So for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours is criticized or blamed, and Sayadaw talked about this the other night uh, to some degree, if, if a particular quality or, uh, uh, of ours is criticized or blamed, some personality uh, aspect uh, is blamed, we think I'm blamed. And of course equanimity is shaken. If we receive approval, if we receive praise for something that we've done, one might think, I've been praised, I'm a, I'm a success. And equanimity is disturbed with that one as well. Or if the work that we've done, maybe it doesn't succeed or it isn't praised in the way that we want it to be, one might think that my work has failed. I've failed. And of course equanimity is shaken. If our wealth or a loved one is lost, we might think what's mine is gone and equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the the delusion of identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the mind and the heart opens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, which itself might be quite a daunting thought. So we begin with the small things from which it's easy to detach oneself and then gradually working up to the possessions and goals and identifications that we so very tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge, which is one of the practice venues at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, it was for two months of teaching and I was the first visiting teacher there. So I was there long enough to um, really settle in. And yet again, uh, again and again, uh, there was the awareness that the house that I was living in wasn't mine. And it came about in small and simple and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. And it was difficult not to have a telephone in the house. For instance, uh, when I wanted to check or send email, I had to carry my computer over to the tiny little uh, yogi telephone room in the administration building. So I lobbied for a phone, uh, which in moments felt like it was for me. And there was quite a degree of tension and stress in this. But in the truth, but in truth, the phone was for the many, many, many others who would be using that house over many years. And at one point I was told that it was okayed, uh, uh, that a phone would be put into the house. But when that would happen was unknown. <laughs> and at that point then there was a very quick letting go. And no more thoughts about it occurred. I relaxed and I felt, uh, really truly felt that it just didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was still staying in the house or not. Because it wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. 
And it was a great relief, actually. And also during that time, uh, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room of that house. And Jeannie, who was the housekeeper at that time, brought the rug catalog over to me and the two of us, uh, for us, the two of us to look at it and decide which rug to order. Well, it clearly wasn't a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone, actually. And I noticed that it was such a difference, uh, such a different experience in the heart and the mind with this. There wasn't this subtle contraction of something being mine, being for me. There was an openness and a spaciousness. There was no contraction, no clinging in the choosing. And, and it was a lot more fun, actually, that way. So the small things at first um, that we think are ours and working up to giving up, to letting go of, to relinquishing uh, other uh, stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are, what we call our personality. It's actually the thought of these, of being who I am, that is that we relinquish. The qualities, a lot of them stick around for quite a long time, sometime, some through the whole of our life. But it's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought uh, of this is who I am that we give up, that we let go of. And maybe beginning with very small aspects of our personality qualities of seeming minor importance. And then very slowly, uh, through our practice, maybe working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment is a way to say it, in relationship to those emotions and aversions uh, that we may regard as the very center of our being. Again, from Ajahn Sumedho, who up until very recently was the abbot of the Amaravati Monastery uh, in England, he shares uh, a wonderful way that he has practiced with this. He said that when a particular habitual tendency of his would show up, and in this case he's, he's uh, talking about the critical mind, he would say to himself, Oh, there's my personality. <laughs> Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am? Being me. Oh, it's just the critical mind. Even including positive emotions or aversions or even specific gifts with Uh, which we might regard or be identified with as the center of our being. As we let go of, as we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of self, equanimity will enter our heart. How could anything that we realize, that we really truly realize, is not me, not mine, not who I am. How could it cause us any agitation due to greed or lust or hatred or fear or grief? The teaching and the practice of not-self is our guide along the path to equanimity. It's our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind, is rooted in insight. The first uh, understanding, the first being that of kama, and the second being anatta. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, it isn't cold or heartless or dull. 
it doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness. But it's really out of a fullness or a completeness, we could say, of connection and understanding. At some point in our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled, mature, concentration and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other. Along with and in balance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. And at that point, there's a very clear uh, understanding, uh, uh, insight into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, the defilements, as they're classically called, and a clear insight into the advantages of purification. Insider understanding at this point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, a clarifiedness within one's mind, which manifests due to one's capacity for onlooking equanimity. And the Buddha spoke about this equanimity as absolute equanimity or unworldly or he called it holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not an increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen. Such is the nature of holy equanimity. As an aid, as a nutriment for the arising and development of equanimity, the Buddha offers us some specific directions. We're told to listen to, approach, attend, uh, attend to, and to recollect and go forth after monks, nuns, and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue, sila, concentration, insight, and who have the knowledge and vision of liberation. It's said that hearing the Dhamma from such people is helpful. We're told to dwell mindfully and to investigate states, and that if we investigate with care and with wisdom, our energy will be aroused without slacking. And when this happens, a spiritual joy is aroused and developed. And that when one's mind and heart is uplifted with the spiritual joy, the body will become tranquil. And when the body is tranquil, one's mind becomes tranquil. We're told that once one's body is tranquil, and one who, when one is quietly happy in the mind and the heart, the mind is then very easily concentrated. And that when concentration develops and deepens, one looks on with equanimity at the mind that is concentrated. And the commentaries tell us that there are some particular conditions in the whole of our life that will help towards the arising and development of equanimity. The first being developing and maintaining tranquility towards living beings developing and maintaining neutrality towards inanimate objects, not spending a lot of time with possessive people, associating with people who maintain neutrality towards beings and inanimate objects. And lastly, the commentaries suggest that we make a resolve to incline the mind, to incline the heart towards the arising, development, fulfillment, and perfection of equanimity. As we practice, 
we come to know when equanimity is in us. And we come to know when it's absent. We come to know how it arises and how its development comes about. And so we practice here in retreat, we practice at home, in the midst of our daily lives. We practice with diligence, we practice with sincerity. And we sit with a growing understanding and the blossoming of insight. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And because of all of this, it's inevitable that the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. We could say it's our kama. I'd like to close with uh, a short piece from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha in relationship to equanimity. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her or him? And let's sit quietly for just a couple of moments. <clears throat> 